Slim fast. Don't eat a meal, just drink a milkshake to lose weight. The potato diet. Only eat potatoes. Period. A juice cleanse. Don't chew your food. I-I-F-Y-M. Eat as many Pop-Tarts as you like, as long as it fits your macros. Don't eat fat, because, well, it makes you fat, right? Yes, there is always a new theory, a new diet, a new fad. Most of us have tried one thing or another to either lose weight or hope to get healthy. That is exactly why the weight loss industry is close to $70 billion. But how do we decipher between what is doing us more harm than good? We try so hard to stick to something for the good of our health, and yet we sometimes are doing the exact opposite. Enter today's Women of Impact. Having been the victim of sexual abuse at a young age, she quickly spiraled out of control. Dating drug dealers, becoming addicted to drugs herself, dropping out of college because of it. Yep, she was driving down Danger Highway, a one-way street to destructive lane. So she grabbed the steering wheel, took control of her vehicle of life and made a U-turn onto Growth Mindset Valley. She made new friends, changed apartments, got new clothes, started listening to new music and discovered the power of nutrition. So she decided to go on a 30-day dietary experiment and blog about it. She decided to eliminate all grains, sugar, dairy, alcohol and legumes and see how she felt and to her surprise, it not only transformed her health and her food habits, but it redefined her relationship to food. And the Whole30 was born. Now a household name, she has approved meals found in Whole Foods, Walmart and Thrive to name a few and has partnerships with over a hundred brands with eight Eight books under her belt, including a New York Times bestseller, she garners over 2 million unique visitors every month to her website and is known in over 100 countries. So guys, please help me in welcoming the woman whose brand has become like a religion for some employees here at Impact Theory. And for 30 days, multiple times a year, I hear the words Whole30 mentioned more times than a newborn baby cries. Seriously, her groundbreaking method is helping millions eliminate cravings, improve energy and sleep, reduce allergies, anxiety, chronic pain, digestive issues, skin conditions, as well as lose weight healthily and sustainably. The creator and CEO of Whole30, the eliminator herself, Melissa Urban. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the show, <laughs> my dear. a lovely introduction. Oh, I loved writing <laughs> The Eliminator. I don't think I've heard I know, that one before. I was like, yeah. It's good. Um, thank you for being on the show. Your story is incredible. Where I want to start is talk to me about when you were addicted to drugs and that transformation that you made, the initial transformation, not just with your food, but your lifestyle. Yeah, you know, I was addicted for about five years. And as you mentioned, I lost family and friends. I stole from my family. I had to drop out of school. I had a lot of serious repercussions, obviously repercussions to my health. Mm. Um, when I went to rehab the first time through the encouragement of a boyfriend who cared about me very much and helped facilitate that in a very supportive family, I got out and I was uh, in recovery for a year and I ticked off all the boxes. I went to my meetings, I went to my therapy appointments, but the only thing I did during that year was not use. Mm. And at the end of that year, I found myself using drugs again. And I used for probably just a few weeks until I got really scared and realized that I was probably gonna die. And I checked myself back into rehab. And at that point I realized that if I was gonna stay in recovery, I had to change everything about my life, everything. It wasn't enough just to do the thing. I had to go above and beyond. So I adopted a growth mindset. I 
told myself every day that I was a healthy person with healthy habits who was worthy of love and had value, um, which was a far cry from what I told myself when I used. I changed my friends. I changed the music I listened to. I changed my clothes. I moved. I got a new job. I started going to the gym. I started paying attention to what I ate. And that was really the start of my transformation. I've been in recovery now for almost 20 years. Wow, congratulations. Thank you. Um, So take me through that. Like, where do you actually start? Because what you said and all the list that you just said of how you change it is is so incredible. But what does that first step look like? Like, so did, in fact, let me ask a better question. Did growth mindset come after you changed small little things like your environment, your friends? Like, what all did you do that in? Yeah, I don't, I didn't know anything about a growth mindset. I wouldn't have been able to Mm -hmm. identify or call what I was doing in terms of growth mindset. I think there were a few things. The first, I give a lot of credit to literal divine intervention. I feel like in that moment, I had drifted away from any like relationship with God or spirituality. And I feel like God kind of intervened and like gently gave me the courage to ask for help. Part of it was recognizing that what I had been doing in the past, um, the meetings that I was going to were not enough to keep me kind of on the road to recovery. And I really dove back into therapy, one-on-one therapy to unpack the sexual abuse and the trauma that led me to use in the first place. So I think getting started with that and realizing that until I dealt with that, I would never be truly free of the desire to like numb or escape was huge. And then it was, you know, not this big grand conscientious plan. It was just one thing at a time. If I was now a healthy person with healthy habits, worthy of love, with value, would I be still wearing these like old baggy clothes and my hat with the pot leaf on it? Would I still be listening to music that reminded me of my using days? Would I still be associating with the same people that I knew were going to constantly try to tempt me? No, I would join a gym and I would meet some girlfriends who enjoyed running and who didn't always want to go out drinking, who would rather meet at 6 a.m. for a morning run or a yoga class than you know, a bar session, but I had some friends who still used and it wasn't problematic for them. I had to have a really serious sit down conversation. Uh, I remember talking to my best friend, James, and I said to him, you can still smoke pot, do whatever you want. Just don't do it around me. Don't ever offer it to me. And if I ever tell you that it's okay for me to smoke it now, I need you to call my sister and tell her that I'm not okay. So I set these really clear boundaries around our relationship and our friendship. And I gave myself like these safety nets because I knew at some point down the line, I would probably be tempted and I'd probably feel week. And once he agreed to that and held by it, we can continue the friendship. So that's kind of how I handled it. Wow, that's really good. Um, okay, so now take me through your, you start to work out, is that correct? Yeah. Um, but I heard you say that obviously because you had been on drugs for so long, you were very skinny. And so um, the scale and the mirror became your best friend initially. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that. I had a lot of body dysmorphia. I think from using, I was very, very skinny. But while I was using and skinny, people would compliment me on how good I looked. You have the figure to wear anything or, you know, it's so effortless for you to pull off this like sheath dress. They had no idea how sick I was. And this is why it's so dangerous to comment on women's appearance, by the way, and body weight or body at any stage. But I would get the compliments. And then when I got out of rehab and started exercising, kind of threw myself into exercise as a substitute. So I was over exercising and probably not eating enough. That modulated itself on its own pretty quickly, which was great. But I felt like I was a real slave to the scale. I felt like I was obsessed with seeing results. Um, When I started gaining weight again, because I was actually getting healthier, it was hard for me. 
uh, to see my body change like that. So, I, you know, I never had an eating disorder. I don't think I ever had any anything that was that serious, but I definitely had a dysfunctional relationship with the mirror and the scale and how I viewed myself and my body. And I remember being at the gym and there was a woman standing in front of me in the mirror doing like bicep curls and I was behind her. And I looked at her and thought to myself, if I was her size, I would be so happy and perfect with myself. And as I walked up to the mirror to put my dumbbells back and looked at us side by side, I was leaner and smaller than she was. It was, that was a wake up moment for me mm. where I recognized that you're not seeing yourself the way that you are. And so that was the point where I was like, let's just try to get out of the mirror and off the scale because this is not healthy for you. Yeah, I remember the day that I was like, I, I used to weigh myself twice a day. Yeah. And like, did what I eat, just did I just gain weight from it? Obviously, now I know way better. Yeah. And so I just declared to myself one day, I am not going to weigh myself again. And it was just like that. Yep. I was like, because I'm an all-in or not. So yeah. I was like, yeah. I'm never going to step on a scale again. And it was so freeing. Yeah. Um, I actually have a quote of yours, because you just mentioned about how... Um, it's dangerous for other people to look at you and say, oh my God, you're so skinny. And this quote was just amazing. Accepting other people's praises as your truth also means you have to accept other people's criticism as your truth. Mm. <gasps> I was like, oh girl. So yeah. talk to me about that. Yeah. How do you avoid it? Because compliments feel good. Yeah, and so do. when you're in those moments, it's easy to go, yes. Yeah. Yes, I did do a good job. Yeah. You know? But going back to what you're saying, you're now relying on people to be to do both and it's yeah. like if they criticize you how do you not take that on board i know it's two sides to the same coin yeah. it's not that i don't want compliments to feel good they should feel good you should be able to gracefully accept them and let them feel good and and let yourself feel proud of that i just don't want them to define you i don't ever want someone else's opinion of me to shape how i think i am or my worth or my value and so when you allow someone else's words to permeate and like build your foundation. If you tell me that I'm pretty or that I'm smart or that I'm talented and I allow that to attach to my self-worth, then the next person who tells me I'm not that pretty, I'm not that smart, I'm not that talented immediately deflates me. And what happens is that the compliments fill you up less and the criticism breaks you down more. And you end up just in this place where you can't ever get ahead because I haven't decided for myself what my worth and what my value are. So when I know my worth and my value, when you give me co a compliment, it's just how you're choosing to experience me. And that's lovely. And I'm so happy that you're choosing to experience me like that. But it doesn't actually say anything about me. And when that person criticizes, it's the same thing. Yeah. yeah. All right. So now the billion dollar question, how do you gain self-worth? I had to do this exercise with my therapist um, where he forced me to take a good hard look at my qualities and what I thought about them. So uh, my looks, do I think I'm pretty, beautiful, average, ugly? Where do I stand in that? How well I write? Am I Hemingway? Do I write like a fourth grader? Am I just okay? Do I write well? And having to do these exercises where I really, as uncomfortable as it was, looked at all of these different pieces of me and landed on where I think I am, that was an incredibly freeing experience because now no matter what you think, I know what I think mm. and I'm crystal clear on it. And I think going back to you know what I think about myself, but also recognizing that my worth is not attached to what I do. 
or the accomplishments I have or the accolades people give me. It's the things that are inherent in me that no one can take away that define my worth. I'm kind, I'm generous, I'm empathetic, I'm loyal, and that's where my worth is built. So identifying these things in yourself and getting really solid in them and then knowing the things that people can't take away, like that's where my foundation is now. Hmm. Yeah. You weren't originally empathetic though, correct? No. You had to like talk to me about that. <laughs> no, no. I, I was not empathetic with anyone else because I was never empathetic with myself. You know, with my history of sexual abuse at 16, which is such a young age, telling myself like, toughen up, uh, get over it, shove it down. You know, it was probably your fault anyway. I was so mean to myself around that issue. And then it was very hard for me to be empathetic with anybody else with their feelings. People would cry or people would express grief or sorrow. And I would see it as weakness because I saw it that in myself. And it was hard for me to understand how other people, that was okay for other people. So how did you then learn to, was it really um, dealing with working on yourself, having empathy for yourself, and then that naturally allowed you to have empathy for others? Exactly. Yeah, it was going back through my trauma and unpacking it and like reparenting myself and realizing like, you know, it was, it was not your fault. You did the best you could, uh, forgiving myself for the way that I handled it. Um, that was a huge piece of it, showing myself grace when I struggle in life, you know, now 10, 15, 20 years later, still things were popping up related to my trauma. And I felt like I was not cared for the way I wanted to during that issue. And it was simply a result of my parents not knowing what to do. It was just, everyone did the best they could in that situation, but I had to almost go back to that 16 year old girl and say like, it wasn't your fault. Someone should have stood up for you and they didn't, but I will stand up for you now. Um, you know, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to be confused. It's okay to be upset. It's okay to forgive yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and learning how to do all of that was so powerful in terms of my engagement with other people. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. Okay, so you have now adopted more of a healthy lifestyle, you've changed. How do you weigh the difference between like people wanting or yourself looking a certain way or being internally healthy? Um, at what point did you then adopt what is now coined the Whole30? Um, was it during that period? Like, Were you struggling between the two of healthy internally and looks externally? I think, I don't know that I was necessarily struggling. There wasn't this like back and forth. They were just always kind of combined. If I was lean or thin or fit, then I was healthy. I really had that like association, yes. which is so bizarre because obviously I was at my like leanest. I had a six pack when I was using heroin and that's not healthy. Right. You would think I would have known the difference, but still I had that association. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I did my first Whole30 in 2009. So this is nine years after rehab, nine years into my health journey, a few years after I found CrossFit. It wasn't until the Whole30 and like, realizing the ways that I was using food, the way I used to use drugs to sort of punish or reward or self-soothe or relieve anxiety and, and having this like transformational 30 day experience where I felt like I was finally off the scale and out of the mirror. It was the whole 30 that did that for me. Yeah. Yeah. And so in blogging that, what was like the next steps? Cause I'm sure you were just like, I feel great. I need to tell everybody about exactly. it. Yeah. As one does, right? right? When you do something that's so life-changing, I called my friend Melissa and I was like, I did this thing. It was really cool. 
cool. I got these great results. Do you think anyone would be interested in this? And she was like, yeah, I think people would be. So I wrote about it on my CrossFit personal training blog and a few hundred people said, we would love to try this protocol. So I wrote up a very rudimentary set of rules. And in July, 2009, I led people through the first group Whole30 in the comments in my blog spot. Like it was <laughs> just amazing. <laughs> and it was very tough love back then. I was not, I was not this far on my empathy journey. So it was okay. kind of like, these are the rules. If you want to do it, do it. If you decide that you're going to cheat or give up, like go somewhere else because I don't have time to take care of you. I've got mm. like plenty of other people who will do this 30-day journey. But people had tremendous results and very similar results. And that was the moment where I was like, I think we're onto something here. You know, when two people do an experiment, they have awesome life-changing results. You're like, okay, that was interesting. When a hundred people report similar findings, that's when you realize that there's actually something to be had. Mm. Talk yeah. to me about what you learn about excuses from people. I'm sure that you get them a lot. Um, I heard you say a cookie is not is never just a cookie. Yeah. Um, talk to me about that. You know, I often, in the beginning days of Whole30, people would come up with all these reasons why they couldn't do the program. I'd love to do the Whole30, but uh, I can't meal plan. I don't have time to grocery shop. I'm not a good cook. And when you hear something like that, your instinct is to provide them with an, a solution, mm -hmm. an answer. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'll come over to your house and I'll help you meal plan. I'll give you a grocery shopping list. I'll come over and help you meal prep. But invariably, they would just come back with another excuse. Well, okay, you're gonna help me meal prep, but I also travel a lot for work. What I came to realize was that you can't win an emotional argument with logic. And what is happening here is that they are spewing what sounds like logical things at you, and really underneath what they're saying is, this is terrifying. There's something about this idea that's really scary to me. Giving up the foods I love, changing my habits permanently. You know, maybe they're afraid of failure. I've tried so many times and nothing's worked. Maybe they're afraid of success. Maybe they identify with their illness or their disease and it's really hard to believe that some of their actions, you know, even something like changing their diet may provide an improvement in symptoms. So there are any number of reasons why taking on something like the Whole30 is really scary but throwing logic at them is not gonna help. You have to get to that underlying question of like, what about this journey is really scary to you? How can we talk about that instead? Yeah, God, I love that so much. And um, in fact, I've got another great quote of yours. People get attached to their disease or issue to the point that suggesting they can improve their condition by changing their diet is almost a threat to them because they've been so attached and conditioned. And accepting their condition can improve with diet is also accepting that maybe their condition has gotten worse because of their choices. Yeah. Why are people so afraid to look hard at themselves and say, okay, it is based on the choices I've made, but now I can change it. I know. Versus just like back off in fear. When, you know, logically you would think that it would be the best news ever mm -hmm. that maybe you can change your diet and see an improvement in some of these symptoms. There's no, it's not a cure-all or a fix-all, but maybe you can regain some of that empowerment. But I think in part, you know, living with a chronic illness or a chronic condition is so incredibly debilitating physically and mentally and emotionally. And especially if you've tried a bunch of different doctors or different approaches, maybe you've tried dietary changes before and they haven't worked, they haven't been the right fit. It can be really overwhelming to get, put yourself out there and try again. Mm. You know, I think it's also easier sometimes in that situation to like absolve yourself of responsibility. This doctor is going to be responsible for my care and I'm just gonna do what the doctor says. And taking back power, while incredibly um, beneficial, is also really scary. So there are a lot of reasons, I think, where people would be hesitant to 
make those changes and take back their power. But addressing again some of those emotional responses, I think, mm. is the very first step. Yeah. Do you think also people do that? Like、um, I've heard you talk about self punishment and how you used to punish yourself, like in the gym and things like that.、Yeah. Do people do that? Have you found people do that、um, with the whole thirty or with reasons to start or not start the whole thirty? I have seen that sometimes, and you know, there's a huge education component around reasons to do the whole thirty and why we don't want you to do the whole thirty. It's not a weight loss diet. It's not a crash diet. It's not a punishment for going off the rails during vacation or during the holidays. It's not a trampoline. You know, we don't want you on the whole thirty and then like YOLO eating whatever you want without even thinking about it, knowing the whole thirty will save you come January first. I don't see a ton of it. I think the community really does come to the program for the right reasons. But when we do see that, and I just gave a lecture to my Whole30 certified coaches at our summit about things to look for in your clients that suggest that they're using the Whole30 as a yo-yo diet. Oh, what are the signs? Oh, some of the signs are returning to the Whole30, like. All the time, without ever trying to work your food freedom plan, there's not a conscious, deliberate, you know, in between whole thirties. You're not consciously thinking about: Is this worth it? Do I want it? How did it make me feel when I ate it? Will it be worth it next time? It's just you're either on the whole thirty or you're face first in a box of donuts. That's、mm-hmm. not a good sign. You know, people who are using lang- certain language around food, like I've been so bad, it's time for another whole thirty. Like that's not. That how we talk about ourselves and how we talk about food is so important. That stuff registers in our brain. So those are some th- signs that I, I told our coaches to look for.、Mm. And so if you notice it, what is something that you guys do? Um, in an, I, you said you educate as well. What does that actually look like, and how do you coach people into seeing this as a lifestyle versus a fad diet, like、yeah. so many are?、Uh, sometimes it's st- simply telling someone like you you should not do another whole thirty. Oh really? Absolutely. This is not, and it is not in your best interest to come back to this program at this point. You know, I off. I will say, if I had a dollar for every time I said to someone like you should go to therapy. Are、mm. you in therapy?、Mm. Because if you've done the whole thirty countless times and you still revert. To old habits and patterns and behaviors, sometimes it's not enough to just change the food on your plate. If you're eating to numb your feelings or to escape or to navigate again trauma or some past issues, like unpacking that, much like I had to do with the drug use, can help you change your relationship with food in a way that the whole thirty by itself just can't.、Mm. How do you assess that then? How do you know? I'm eating to numb a pain, or I'm eating for the the quote unquote wrong reasons. The whole thirty helps with that a lot because we remove most of the foods that you would normally use for that purpose. There's no alcohol. There's no sweets or treats. There's no dark chocolate. There's no bread. You know the sweet kind of carby things that you might turn to for comfort. And so a lot of people notice, especially when they go through a stressful situation, that in the absence of those foods, they're like, oh my gosh, now what do I do?、Mm. And that's where we step. In and say, here are all of these other coping strategies you can use. The first of which is like connecting with another human being.、Mm. You know, you mentioned earlier that very often you don't want a cookie. You're not looking for a cookie. You're really looking for a connection. Right. And whether that's a connection to yourself or a connection to someone else or a connection to your higher power or whatever that looks like, you know, seek that connection. So I think the whole thirty is really good at helping people identify ways that they're using food that. Is related to those like emotional distresses or or stressful situations.、Mm. And do you put in other markers? Because I heard you talk about that you、um, when you weren't using drugs, you were then eating bad food. You were smoke, I think smoking I and drinking alcohol while,、yeah. and stuff like that. And it's like, but just because you know people focus on well, I'm not doing this, it doesn't actually mean they're achieving their goals of help being、yeah. healthy. Yeah, you know. 
I think in the earlier days, I might have said, if you're on the Whole30, but you're still drinking way too much coffee and not exercising at all and still maybe smoking cigarettes, like you're doing it wrong. Mm. Now I kind of understand a little bit better having been further in my own recovery that in the beginning, like your only job is to do this one thing that is going to help make all the other things possible. And I find once you gain confidence in that recovery and confidence in that place, it then is a natural progression to look at other areas of your life. Well, now can I, you know, can I do something about my diet? Can I focus on sleeping better? Can I focus on more social connection? Mm. So, you know, in the early days, in the beginning of Whole30, when people are new to the program, I tell them your only job is to put Whole30 food in your mouth. That's it. Don't worry about doing the perfect Whole30. Don't worry if you're eating too much. Don't worry if you're eating too much fruit. Like, if it's Whole30, put it in your mouth, you are winning. And that's honestly enough. That's honestly all you need to do to succeed with the program. Right. So once you released the book, um, you then were on a book tour, correct? And that's when you actually separated from your husband. Yeah. Um, and you'd had a newborn baby. Yeah. And um, f I, talk to me about that. Talk to me about how you emotionally went through it. And then imposter syndrome. Yeah. So much therapy, <laughs> which is we, my, my original co-founder was also my husband. We founded the program together. We wrote the first two books together, um, but the marriage was not great. We did have a child. There was like a five minute period where we were doing well. I got pregnant right away. And then we had a baby who was a blessing and wonderful, but he was really young when we decided to separate. And so he was like less than a year old. We had just published the Whole30 book. We were on Dr. Oz walking down the street holding hands in the process of getting divorced and no one knew. Because A, it was nobody's business. B, we certainly didn't want to take away from the book launch or like the, the investment the publisher had made in us with this announcement. And C, we were grown up people who were certainly capable of like promoting this work together and not letting our personal issues get in the way. And I'm so proud of how we handled it. I think we showed up for the book and for each other and for our community beautifully, but it was the most stressful period of my life. Yeah. 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 So how did you actually handle that on a day to day? Because, you know, I'm imagining, you know, it's such an emotional term turmoil for you in that period yeah. to then step out, you know, you open the door and now you're smiling, you're on Dr. Oz, you're holding hands, but that's so far from your authentic feelings. I know. Um, take me through that and the imposter syndrome and how you overcome that. Because I think so many people, whether it's that or, you know, they just feel like they don't belong, they, they're, you know, they're putting on a face, but it's not a real face. I know. It felt awful. It feels awful to present yourself in such a way that you know is so false. It, for that situation in that scenario, I knew we had to. It was um, not feasible, it was not reasonable, and I don't think it was in our highest interest to show up on this book tour as a couple in the middle of a divorce. Mm -hmm. That just like would not have been good for anyone. So we knew we had to do it like this, and we did not go over the top. We didn't pretend to be in love. We didn't pretend like everything was perfect. We showed up and we did our job really well, but that was it. But in the years leading up to that, there was a lot of imposter syndrome where I felt like I had to be this perfect Whole30 version of Melissa where my relationship was perfect and my life was perfect and I always ate well and I was always polished and I was always professional and it was exhausting. And I felt like I was an imposter in my own life. I couldn't even live up to the social media image that I had crafted. And 
it felt so inauthentic. I felt so like insecure and sick about it. I knew at one point somebody was going to figure out that I had no idea what I was doing. And it wasn't until a like breakdown during a workshop where I went into the back during a break and I just started crying. And I said, I, I can't do this. I'm not qualified to be up here. And I realized that it was because I was trying to do way more than I was capable of to show people that I was worthy. When I went back out and started responding to questions with, I don't know, actually, let me find out for you. Or that's not my area of expertise. Dallas, what do you think about that? It felt so much better. And I think once you get a taste of what it feels like to show up as yourself in a fantastic way, it just fuels you wanting more of that. So I almost went on this like authenticity rumspringa where I was like, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. Like, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not good at that. Here's what I love. And I spent the next couple of years showing up like that. And it felt awesome. But during that period of book tour going through our divorce, yeah, it was really difficult to show up like that. But I knew it was for the greater good and that eventually we'd be able to share our story and then we would be able to move on as our authentic selves once we had separated. It's, it's, I'm sure, surprising to some people where they hear, like, you were insecure. And I think that most women, I've never met one woman that who's never yeah. been insecure. Yeah. But talk to me about confidence and how you make it bomb-proof. I heard uh, your podcast that you did that was amazing. Yeah. And your breakdown of how to bomb-proof your confidence. Yeah, that was what I kind of spoke to a little bit earlier, going back to this idea of getting really solid on who I think I am. So when my first book came out, I was so excited to read my Amazon reviews. I couldn't wait to read my Amazon reviews and see what people thought of the book. And one of the first Amazon reviews I wrote started off with, she writes like a fourth grader. And I thought, I mean, it devastated me. All of these, the whole world could read this Amazon review and see that I wrote like a fourth grader. And then I thought back to this kind of exercise I had done in therapy where I thought about, you know, how pretty do I think I am? And I thought, I need to do this on my writing. So I sat down and I went through how good a writer I am. And I arrived at this place where I'm a good writer. I write well. I do. And I'm, I'm not Hemingway or Tolkien, but I also don't write like a fourth grader. And once I arrived at this place of like how well I think I wrote, I could look at that comment and say, wow, I'm so sorry that that's how you're choosing to experience the book. But I don't actually think that says anything about me. And then the next review that said this is the best book I've ever written mm. didn't inflate me. I just said, well, I'm so happy that that's how you're seeing it. But that was, you know, the exercise that I went through where I feel like now I'm navigating the world from a place of confidence, not because I think I'm amazing in every single area, because there are definitely some kind of areas of assessment where I'm like, oh, you're not that good at that. Mm. But I know it. And there's some freedom in saying, I'm not that good at that. I can still work on it. I can still want to get better. But I accept myself exactly where I am. That's what I was going to ask. How do you not <clears throat> make or allow that to be detrimental to you? Because I think that some people, it, allows, it pushes them in the opposite direction. You know, it's easy to get bummed out about it. Right. We were talking earlier about my podcast. I've got this new podcast. And in the beginning days, I would go back and re-listen to it. And I did the kind of self-reflection on the podcast. Mm. And I came up with like, I'm not that good a host yet. And it was a super bummer for like a day. I was like, man, I really want to be good at this. I'm trying really hard, but I'm not good at it yet. And then it was like, okay, I'm not that good at it yet. Guess what? I'm new. It's the first time I've ever done this. And so, and like my people are pretty forgiving and they're listening to me anyway. And it's not like the worst podcast I've ever heard. So what could I do to do better? Mm -hmm. And I came up with, 
you know, I could be a little bit more authentic. I could be a little bit less scripted. I could be a little bit more relaxed. I could only have guests on that I was truly jazzed about. And all of these things allowed me to go back and listen to the 25th episode and think like, yeah, you're doing better. That's good. Yeah. It seems like in everything that you're saying is that you've allowed to give yourself grace. Yeah. Like whether it's food, whether it's working out, whether it's your podcast or your business, giving yourself grace seems like a very big thing for you. It's huge. I would give you grace. Mm. I would give, I would pile grace upon you if you were struggling with your podcast or if you were struggling with your health or your food. Like I would show you all the grace and all of the support and yet we're so reluctant to give that to ourselves. Um, and so I think realizing that like, I'm just as deserving of that as you. And it feels so much nicer to be kind to myself. And it's far more motivating to me to come from that place of kindness than it ever was to come from a place of punishment. Punishing myself never actually drove me to be better at things. Mm. It just made me feel worse. Yeah. Talk to me about, um, your power of belief. Um, so I know that you had lost, um, God, as you say, um, when you were doing drugs and then you found him again. Talk to me about that. Um, And you also, what I love is that you don't say that this has to be for everybody. So talk to me about that because it's something I'm personally very interested in because I don't believe in God. But I still find that I have a belief system. And when I hear people talking about their belief in God, I'm extremely fascinated in what it brings to their life. And then the, um, the similarities that we have in the belief of something yeah. that we're able to achieve. So yeah, talk to me about your transition and your yeah. experience. I, I think I resisted any messages or any conversation that anyone would try to have if the word God was in it for a very long time because I just didn't like the idea of God. I grew up Catholic and then I moved away from the church and then I moved away from all religion and it took me a while to find it again. But I think because I wasn't open-minded, I missed a lot of good messages because I did always have right. some kind of belief system. Uh, I don't care whether you call it God or the universe or mother nature. I don't care if it's just a belief in yourself. So maybe, you know, it's your intuition or your gut or like that little signal in your brain that like steers you to your highest interest, whatever it is, I really encourage people to cultivate a relationship in whatever way suits them, calling it whatever you want, connecting however you want, wherever you want. You know, I call hiking in the mountains my church. That's where I talk to God. That's where I listen. And I feel like I, the chatter in my head is quiet out there. And I get to actually send messages and ask for help and receive guidance. And sometimes it's just joy and sometimes it's release. And so I really invite and encourage people to like keep an open mind, whatever you believe, um, even if your only belief system is in yourself. I love that so much because I used to do the same in the fear of like, okay, someone, because I used to believe in God. I I grew up very um, um, traditional Greek Orthodox. Yeah. And, you know, to mention it to my father, like I didn't want to break his heart. And um, but then when I would meet people that I would get along with in every aspect and they would talk about God, I would then like back off because I was always worried a that I would be judged. And recently I found it. um, I'm like kind of almost trying to do the opposite and like really opening myself up, hearing people's belief systems and trying to create a space where, like you said, it doesn't matter what you actually believe. It's if how you can use it to better your life. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have friends who are very Bible-based. They have a very Bible-based faith, and we'll sit around at dinner and talk about Jesus and the Bible, and, like, it that doesn't click with me. It just doesn't, mm-hmm. but 
I love talking about it. I love hearing their faith and how their faith like props them up during difficult times or supports their life or supports their family. Um, I've been to a few actual churches, like building churches. And again, like going to a physical church isn't my thing, but I always take something away from the lesson or the mm-hmm. message. I feel like there's there's something to be had in those conversations. And I think if you can approach it with the like, we don't have to believe the same thing. We don't have to call it the same thing, but we come at it with kind of this open-minded approach where I'm going to take what serves me, I think we will hear things that are useful. And I use that word, like what serves me. That's so spot on. So talk to me about your new book. What are your plans? Like, where do you see this going? Where do you see your company going? Oh my gosh, yeah. So Whole30 Friends and Family is the newest book. It just came out. And again, I've said a million times, I've never had a good idea in my life. Every good idea I've ever had has come from my community. And that's exactly where the idea for this book came from. So, you know, I've watched millions of people go through the Whole30 at this point. And what I realized about a year and a half ago was like they had the food stuff down. They had, they knew how to grocery shop. They knew how to mail plan. They had emergency food on hand. They threw away their scale. They got their support system in place, but they were still struggling with social situations, like everyday social situations, the kind of stuff that come up during almost anybody's Whole30. It's the birthday parties and the family dinners and the baby showers and the brunches. So we put together a book with 22 menus for everyday social occasions that people can either host or bring a dish or contribute a dish to, and then a bunch of tips for helping them navigate those social situations with ease. It's interesting how that is probably one of the most powerful things over than just making a decision when you're sitting by yourself. Like when you're in those social situations, the pressure... Yes, I'm sure you've experienced this too, where like you can make people feel bad about what they're eating just by pulling out what you eat. You don't have to say a thing. And, you know, people can get very defensive. The people who are, you would expect to support you the most, the ones who are closest to you can be the ones who give you the most pushback, which is really confusing. Do you know why? So, like if you... Oh, so many reasons. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes they're legitimately concerned for you. They feel like maybe you're doing this crazy diet for weight loss and you just have to explain that the Whole30 isn't a diet and you're not doing it for weight loss loss. And sometimes that's enough. Often it's because your actions are a reflection on their behavior and their judgment. You know, it's not like a window, it's a mirror. And when you're changing your habits, it's shining a light on the things that they know that they should probably change or they've wanted to change or tried to change on their own and haven't been able to. Sometimes they're afraid that they're going to lose their brunch buddy, drinking buddy. Like if you get all healthy and you don't want to sit around and, you know, drink beer every Friday night, like who am I going to do that with? Um, So there I think are a lot of reasons. It could be jealousy that you're finally taking action and feeling empowered to make these changes when they don't. But I think simple conversations are like the best way to try to navigate these before you start a Whole30 or before you show up at a social gathering. It's here's what I'm doing, and you have a little elevator speech. Here are the personal reasons why I'm doing it. Not, we eat too much sugar, or we drink too much, or I hear, you know, sugar is really bad for you, where there's like an implication. It's, I'm struggling with my sugar cravings, and it makes me feel out of control with food. And I think by doing the Whole30, I'll develop some new nighttime habits and won't need to prowl through the pantry every night at 10 p.m. And I think that will help me sleep better, too, which I'm really looking forward to. You know, keeping the focus on you and why you're doing what you're doing helps to diffuse that tendency for the partner to be defensive. But I've also just shared something kind of vulnerable with you. I'm feeling out of control with food. And that becomes maybe a relatable experience where 
maybe you've had that experience too. And now we can talk about it and forge a connection as opposed to food being this like divider between mm. us. So how do you handle it if you're telling somebody that and they're just fixed mindset? They don't hear the words that they're saying, maybe because they're being defensive for their own sake. Yeah. So they just shut off and they don't hear it. What do you do in those situations? Because I've been in the situations where my Greek family, you know, they have a way of thinking. And if you go with anything that is outside their norm, no matter how much you try and come yeah. at it from that standpoint, they just don't hear you. Yeah. You know, I think boundaries in that situation are really, really important. Obviously, your kind of soft entry into it is, you know, I don't want to talk about food over food. That's kind of a rule that I have, right? So if you're sitting at like, I don't want to talk about food over food. If you want to continue the conversation after, I'd be happy to share a bit more after dinner. Let's just enjoy this meal and then change the subject. How was the vacation you recently went on? Continuing to show up for social situations so that you remind them that the point of the situation is to enjoy this connection and the time together. It doesn't really matter what's on your plate, I think can be really, really important. But if you get into a really serious situation where like your family is just not holding your boundary, they're continuing to pressure you, or you know, every time you show up to dinner, there's absolutely nothing you can eat despite your requests, mm. polite, you may just have to end up socializing with them outside of mealtime or outside of food. You know, Maybe you meet to go for a walk or maybe you meet for a play or a movie or some kind of game night or something, but maybe food doesn't have to be the central focus and maybe that makes it easier. Mm, yeah, that's definitely something that I hear a lot of people talk about when they've either gone on the whole 30 or just other types of yeah. um, changes in their lifestyle, that they get that pressure where people just don't want to hear again yeah. because I think it reflects on how their eating habits are yeah. and it's easier for them to dismiss you than it is to actually hear you. Um, but for me, being dismissed as a trigger. Oh, interesting. So when they, when you talk about your food with people or people who care about you and they react in a dismissive way, yeah. how does that make you feel? Yeah, it, it basically then starts to, it used to, I've um, adapted and changed a lot. Yeah. But very early on when I was like, okay, I'm going to get healthy now. Look, I did not do it the right way. So I want to be abundantly clear. Sure. Um, I didn't have the whole 30 to turn yeah. to at the time. But absolutely, like I had um, tried to explain and I got the pressure and I got, um, oh, you're just being ridiculous. Oh, here we go again. And it was constant. Yeah. And so it would start to stir anxiety in me and um, make me feel like I didn't want to be around the people that I love. Yeah, yeah. That was hard. That's where those boundaries come in though, right? It's every time I come here, I feel like I'm getting so much pressure around the way I eat. I'm not going to make a big deal out of it if you don't. But if you continue to behave like this, mm. I'm not going to be able to come over when it's mealtime. Yeah. And, you know, then you have to actually hold that boundary because, again, it's not in your highest interest to show up into that situation. And what happens, you know, in your case, you may absolutely hold your boundary because you will get so ill if you don't. But for other people, often they will give in and eat stuff they don't want to eat just to keep the peace. Mm. And if you're trying to turn these healthy habits into a lifestyle, you have to learn how to hold your boundaries in those social situations. If you keep letting people run you over, you're never going to accomplish your goals. And like, that's not real self-care. Mm. So where's that fine line between holding your ground or just being stubborn and saying, you know what, you should eat the cake because you're with your family. You don't, you yeah. know, it, you get this once a year. To be this restrictive actually doesn't serve you anymore. Where is that fine line? So that's the entirety of the food freedom plan in life after your whole 30, because the program's not meant to be done forever, obviously, right? right? You transition it into your food freedom. 
But thanks to the Whole30, you have learned a lot about how this cake is gonna impact you. Mm. And if you know that you have a really serious gluten sensitivity or the sugar is gonna make you break out or get a migraine, it's very easy to say no because it really isn't serving you. And you would rather kind of hurt someone's feelings and say, I'm so sorry, but like that is not something I can enjoy because it's gonna make me so sick, it's not worth it. You know, I heard from a woman the other day who said, I've been to two birthday parties. Both times they had store-bought cake. Both times I thought to myself, this isn't worth it. And for the first time in my life, I didn't eat it. Hmm. And I was so much happier for holding my boundaries, but also not feeling like poo for the rest of the party. You know, so it's not really a treat if Hmm. it makes you feel like junk for the rest of the event. If you're like me and gluten might make me a little bloated and like maybe I'll break out, but you know, it's my mom's cake and I only get it once a year, it's gonna be worth it and I'm gonna eat it. Mm. And these are the decisions that you get to make for yourself based on what you've learned from the Whole30 in your food freedom. And you can be just as festive or celebrate just as easily with water in your cup or fruit salad on your plate. And I think it's really important for us to make a a mental disconnect between celebrating someone's life and over consuming sugar. Mm -hmm. Those things do not have to be inextricably linked. And the control aspect of knowing what it's gonna cause, right? By eliminating these things, you know the results, you know what's gonna happen if you do. So it's in your control. And that's one thing I remind myself of, if I haven't, you know, if it's my husband's birthday or my birthday, I'd be like, yeah, I'm gonna eat Cold Stone today. And I know what it's gonna do to me. And I know for the next two days I'm gonna be in agony, but I choose to do it because I know that in hindsight it's gonna make me more happy having this one day of yes. fun with my husband then it will be for you know not having it Absolutely. but it's a choice yes. and it's a conscious choice yes that's exactly the point of food freedom you know there's no guilt there's no shame there's a consequence and the only person who can decide if that consequence is worth it is you and if that cold stone makes you so happy and you get to take that picture and you get to eat the ice cream <laughs> and you share this with your husband you'll deal with the consequence and that's completely fine but it is an educated decision at this point mm not a crapshoot where you think you're going to eat the ice cream and be okay and then you suffer for two days and you're not sure why. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. What's your superpower? I love that question. You know, it's funny. We we already kind of covered it, but I would say my superpower now is empathy. That's amazing. I I love that that's the one. It really is. I've cultivated it. I've developed it. I've worked at it. I've grown it, but I feel like it's my greatest strength, both for myself and for others. Yeah. And where could people find you and the book and everything you're doing? I'm primarily on Instagram. So it's just at Melissa U. And then you can write everything about Whole30 just at Whole30, hole in the number three zero. Amazing. Yeah. Guys, guys, you gotta go out, you gotta get this book. Like I said, she has eight of them. Go out and get it. Like I said, there's people in this company that are obsessed with this woman. I naturally eat her diet, but go check her out. Go check out all the amazing things that she's doing. If you're not following me, follow me at Lisa Bilyeu. And if you're not subscribed, click that subscribe button down there. And until next time, guys, be the hero of your own life. Peace out. <laughs>